history has many disturbing things that it can teach us. One of those things that it appears to teach us is that violence works. Adam Dahl has a, has a book called Empire of the People about the origins of our country and about American democracy, and there's a, there's a line that floored me when I read it. It goes like this. Any political order is founded on extra-legal violence that stands outside of democratic legitimacy. What does that mean? It means that historically the only reason that we experience peace now is because violence came before it. We're on this land because of violent removal and assimilation of Native American folks. Freedom from slavery only came as a result of a bloody civil war. It's, it's the logic that lies behind the phrase that the only way to stop a bad guy with a gun is with a good guy with a gun. Never mind the FBI data on active shooters over the course of the past 20 years that reveals that actually active shooters have often been, they've been stopped by more unarmed folks than killed by armed civilians. But it would seem to be the case that history teaches us that violence works. Or maybe we should think about it in another way. Maybe it's not, hist maybe it's not history telling us that violence works. Maybe it's the world. And when I say the world, I mean the world in the sense that we've been talking about it through the Gospel of John, the world order that is opposed to Christ, which would mean that it doesn't really work in the way that we think. And if that's true, well, then what does? We've reached the climax of the Gospel of John. Jesus' speech and farewell prayer broke up action that started back in chapter 13 when Jesus washed his disciples' feet and had the Last Supper with them. And with that done, Jesus' time has come. Chapters 18 and 19 depict what the Gospel of John and each of the Gospels ramp up to, the betrayal, arrest, and death of Jesus Christ. I wanted Slim to get a new graphic together for, the, for, this, for, these, for these next few weeks to drive, to drive home what's, what's going on in these two chapters. This is, this, is, this is what I like to call the breakneck speed of injustice. These two chapters are the events of only a few hours, as over the course of a single day, Jesus is arrested, tried, and killed. He's seen as so much of a threat to the empire and to the religious authorities that they can't be bothered to wait a few days or to put him through a proper trial. But today we're going to begin that march to the cross, the march that Christ embarks on to complete his cosmic mission. And we're going to get a taste of what it means for us to live lives on that march with him. You know the drill. We'll go through the scriptures to see what they mean. Then we'll consider what it means for us as the body of Christ. If you are willing and able, please stand for the reading of God's word. John chapter 18, verses 1 to 27. And when, when he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place, because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said, and Judas the traitor was standing there with them. 
When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again he asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for the people. Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus. Because this disciple was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard, but Peter had to wait outside at the door. The other disciple, who was known to the high priest, came back, spoke to the servant girl on duty there, and brought Peter in. You, you aren't one of this man's disciples too, are you? She asked Peter. He replied, I am not. It was cold, and the servants and officials stood around a fire they had made to keep warm. Peter also was standing with them, warming himself. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. I have spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I always taught in synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby slapped him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest, he demanded? If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what, it was, what was wrong. What if, uh, but if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? Then Annas spent, uh, sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Meanwhile, Simon Peter was still standing there warming himself, so they asked him, you aren't one of his disciples too, are you? He denied it, saying, I am not. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him, didn't I see you with him in the garden? Again, Peter denied it, and at that moment, a rooster began to crow. This is the word of the Lord. Verses 1 to 14 of this chapter are like the beginnings of a cosmic showdown. Jesus crosses the Kidron Valley, mirroring David, who after he was betrayed by his son Absalom and his advisor Ahithophel in 2 Samuel 15 to 17, David flees across this same valley. But David is fleeing from death. Jesus is running towards it. In this garden, one where we're told Jesus often went, Judas shows up, and he doesn't show up alone. Verse 3 says, so, so Judas came to the garden guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Now you're probably wondering what a, a detachment of soldiers is. Well, the Greek word for detachment in verse 3 is spiron, which is a technical word for a cohort of Roman soldiers. How many are in a cohort? 600. 600 Roman soldiers and armed officials from the Jewish leaders, 600 descending on Jesus. 
This picture is absolutely wild. It's the, the very literal armies of the empire are now arrayed against Jesus. He's facing down hundreds of armed men, and he fells them with two words, I am. And the first time he says it, these men literally fall back. But the second time that he identifies himself, they start to move forward to arrest him. And something happens because Peter stays strapped. My, my man Peter's got it on him. And so he pulls his sword out and he slashes off the ear of the high priest's servant. Now remember how we started this sermon, the assumption that violence works? Peter is this narrative's example of that way of thinking. It's very easy to read this story and to sympathize with Peter. You put yourself in his, in his shoes. You think, hey, somebody's coming for my best friend, and after they're done with my best friend, they're going to come after me. Well, if I'm going to go down, I'm going to go down swinging. So he swings. Fun fact, John is actually the only gospel that names the individuals in this exchange. According to the other gospels, one of the disciples cuts off the ear of the high priest's servant. John is like, yeah, yeah, no, that's, that's Peter. He's, he's definitely the one who did. Peter's the one who messes all this stuff. And, 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 I, and I frame it this way because actually the scriptures are very clear in, in how we ought to think of Peter in this moment. It's, it's not just that he's, that he's mistaken or, or that he's rash or that he's just acting out of uncontrollable anger. No, Peter is wrong. He's very, very wrong. He's acting in a way that's completely contrary to the way of Christ wrong. There are two villains in this passage, two betrayers. I talked about this a number of, number of weeks ago, Judas and Peter. Judas literally leads the armies of the empire to Jesus. Peter acts out of the logic of the empire in order to protect Jesus. This is why Jesus responds here in verse 11. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Earlier, Jesus turned to Peter and had said, get behind me, Satan, you remember this episode, when Peter suggested that Jesus didn't have to die to fulfill his mission. Here, Jesus is rebuking Peter for his violent attempt to keep Jesus from fulfilling his mission. But the rebuke is actually even deeper than that. Matthew records a few more of Jesus' words in this context. In Matthew 26, verses 52 to 54, in this same episode, Jesus says, Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my Father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? But how then would the, would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? You may know the phrase, if you live by the sword, you die by the sword. In many ways, I think that's actually a softening of Jesus' words. The Proverbs suggest that if you live a life of violence, then it could end in violence. And it's not always true, but it often is. That's the case with Proverbs. But Jesus' words are actually sharper. He says, if you take the sword, you will die by it. If you pull it out of the sheath, or perhaps to hit home more specifically, if you pull it out of the holster you'll die by it. In this country, most gun deaths are not murders, but suicides. Since the CDC started gathering data back in 1981, that has been true every year. Even the mass shootings that we witness, that, we, that, 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 that fill us with fear and anxiety, even, even those are often planned suicides. The young white men who perpetuate these acts most often don't expect to survive them. And, and Peter, 
Peter didn't just draw the sword to wound. He drew it to kill. Jake, could you come up here? For a moment. It's, this, is, this is easier... This is easier to understand like, if, you, if, you, if, if you think about it physically. 600 armed men coming at Peter. I don't know what's gonna, I don't know what's gonna happen. I'm Peter, pull the sword out. If I'm, go, if I'm gonna defend myself, am I gonna aim for the ear? No. You, you guys, have, you, some, of, some of you may have watched Avengers Infinity War. What's the main mistake that Thor makes? You go for the? Go for the head. If I go for the head and I miss, that's the only way I cut off somebody's ear. Thank you. Thank you, Jake. <laughs> Peter was going for the head. He wasn't aiming to wound. He was aiming to kill. And Jesus could have, in that moment, operated as though violence works. He says as much in that Matthew text where he says, I could have called, um, he he says he could have called a much bigger squad of of much more powerful soldiers. He could have said 600 soldiers and armed men from the Jewish religious leaders, cute. Here's about 6,000 angels. But to do that would have been to fight fire with fire. No, Jesus plans to meet the overwhelming force of the empire with an even more overwhelming power, his death. So they arrest him and they take our Savior away. What follows is an even more powerful contrast. What what John is talking about in verses 14 to 27 is action-packed. If you were were watching it on TV, it would be like a a split screen where you've got got Jesus on this side and Peter on the other, and they're like basically in the same same courtyard. They're like yards from each other, and on one side, Peter's being interrogated, and on the other side, Jesus is being interrogated, and we're, we're on the edge of our seats. We're wondering who's going to speak well, who's going to fail. Well, knowing Jesus and Peter, we have an idea which way this is going to go. In verses 17 and 18, the servant girl who was watching the gate asked Peter whether he was one of Jesus' disciples. He said no. The same Peter that was apparently ready to die for Jesus was not ready to die for Jesus. And this 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 is a tragic descent, and it's achingly uncomfortable to watch it happen. And so the action in the text switches back to Jesus. And and. And Annas interrogates him about his teaching, and his responses are wild. We're told that the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and teaching, probably asking, what are you teaching? What's, who's following you? How'd you get this following? Is this a threat to me? And Jesus responds with prime son of God snark. Verse 20, Jesus says, I've spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I, I always taught in synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. Oh, the Lord and his unwillingness to take mess. He's basically saying, look, I don't know what you're talking. I don't know why you're talking to me. I haven't been hiding. The streets are talking about me all the time. You know what I'm about. And here's something, here's something to note and something to sit with. Jesus is not polite in this moment. Jesus is in the face of death and the empire, and he's talking smack. Applications, sometimes talking smack is appropriate. Sometimes. <laughs> if you don't believe me, the, 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 the response to this text actually backs, it, it, it backs me up. Verse, verse 22, when Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby slapped him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest, he demanded? Now pause. 
Jesus is being tested in this moment. We confess this this, this this morning. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus describes some of the elements of a nonviolent ethic. And one of these examples is getting slapped in the face. Matthew 5, 38 and 39. You have heard that it was said, eye for an eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And what does Jesus do? Well, he doubles down on the smack talk. Verse, verse, verse 23 says, if I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why'd you strike me? Then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Wild. Jesus could have cowered. He could have told the high priest what the high priest wanted to hear. He could have been silent. But instead, in an act of nonviolent resistance, he, he turns the tables on his interrogator, and he reveals that resorting to violence is not a sign of strength, but a sign of weakness. The official nearby got offended and slapped him, attempting to humiliate him, attempting to get a rise out of Jesus, but Jesus remained resolute. Because violence is the lazy and short-term way to affect change. Cut away to Peter for verses 25 to 27. The verses say, meanwhile, Simon Peter was still standing there, warming himself. So they asked him, you aren't one of his disciples too, are you? The question is asked a second time. Peter's got another chance. Maybe he's going to be courageous this time. He denied it, saying, I am not. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him, didn't I see you with him in the garden? Again, Peter denied it. And at that moment, a rooster began to crow. Here again, John draws attention to a detail that the other Gospels don't include, that this last interrogator of Peter is a relative of Malchus, who was apparently in the garden when Peter cut off Malchus's ear. This dude definitely saw Peter. I don't think you would forget the face of somebody who you just saw kill, like, attempt to kill your relative. And yet, Peter in his cowardice denies Jesus for a third time, and a rooster crows, fulfilling Christ's prophecy. So in these moments, probably within a few yards of each other, Peter folds under pressure, and the Son of God stands tall. One was ready to kill, but not ready to die. The other was ready to die, and never willing to kill. So then what does this have to do with us, dear brothers and sisters? I'll be honest, this is, this is a, uh, this is, I, I, was, I, I, I was nervous about this sermon. I'm not normally nervous about sermons. Um, I had a similar kind of internal dilemma when, when, I, when, I, when I started thinking through robustly how do we apply the gospel to the way that we view economics, and that led to the various anti-capitalist things that I've said over the course of the past few months. And before you freak out because I said anti-capitalist, no, I'm not saying the government should own everything. What I'm, what I'm saying is that we in this community, as the body of Christ, obligated to one another through the communion of the saints, we're to practice a political economy that places love and human well-being at its center rather than its periphery. But it's been a little harder when we think about violence. Because when we look around, when we look at the world around us, we see almost nothing but violence. I say this especially as a black man and as a historian of lynching. We see violence against children, we see violence against women, violence against men, violence against the poor, violence against the oppressed, violence against racial and ethnic minorities, violence against sexual and gender minorities, and the temptation in the midst of that violence is to lash out with like violence. The temptation is to lash out with the violence of the state. 
to lash out, to lash out personally with violence, to lash, to lash out on those whom we love with the anger that builds when we consider the injustice that we ourselves suffer or the injustice that those whom we love suffer. In this text, we have two instances of violence that we have to consider. The first is in the garden. We're faced with an army ready to take Jesus, and in Peter's mind, probably to take him too, Peter lashes out to kill, to defend himself and to defend his Savior. And Jesus rebukes this action at the deepest level. The second example is the other use of violence, not to kill, but to shame. When that official slapped Jesus in the face, what did he think he was going to accomplish? He thought that that show of force was going to beat Jesus into humble submission. This violence, Jesus refused to respond to it in the intended way. These texts, combined with Christ's own teaching throughout his ministry, tell us something about the way that the people of God are to live. We are to be a non-violent people. That means that if we take the commands of Christ seriously, we refuse to be violent. That doesn't just mean that we refuse to kill each other, though it does mean that. It, what it means is that we refuse to use violent means to get what we want. It means that we refuse to use coercion to get what we want. It means that we, in our relationships, in our friendships, that we refuse to use harshness to get what we want. It means that we, in our business relationships, we refuse cutthroat tactics. Think about what? what Amazon does. How does it have, how do you get a market cap of over a trillion dollars? Because you relentlessly destroy everything in your wake. Why would I go to Staples or Best Buy or any of these other stores when I can get the same stuff delivered cheaper and faster? There's going to be a point where like Amazon will be able to just, I mean, they're doing this now, just with drones. Like they just drop stuff off at my house. They can't do it here in Waco. They don't have that capability. But Think about the fact that 50 cents of every dollar that's spent online goes to Amazon. And the very word that we use to describe these tactics, cutthroat, draws attention to its violence. And yet the people of God are to be a non-violent people. Now, I know you may be thinking in your mind, well, what about this hypothetical situation or that hypothetical situation? I can't in a sermon answer all of those questions. What I'm encouraging you this morning to do is to sit with Christ's words and to sit with Christ's teachings. Consider your own life. Consider the situations where you are tempted to use violence or harshness to get what you want. I can't remember who told me this, but it's true. Close human relationships, like, like marriage or the relationships that we as brothers and sisters in Christ are supposed to have, these relationships are one way that the Lord teaches us how selfish we are. Children are a way that God, a way that God teaches you how angry you are. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to meddle. I'm going to meddle here. Some of us resort to violent discipline with our children. We think it's the only way. But I'm going to say what I said before. I believe violence is the lazy, short-term way to affect change. Now I want to make you even more upset. Jesus is not just saying, don't be violent. He is saying that. But even in the Sermon on the Mount, the part that's probably going to make you bristle the most, I think about this, uh, just being our church, being who we are, is the, is the fact that after he says, you've heard an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, Jesus says, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. Wait, 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 wait. Don't resist an evil person. 
That doesn't sound right. Don't we, we're, we're supposed to resist injustice. Isn't it, isn't it foolish? Doesn't it, doesn't it make you a doormat if you don't? Some of us are going to resonate much more with the words of Malcolm X in his message to the grassroots than with Jesus. If you don't know, Malcolm in his message to the grassroots says this, there's nothing in our book, the Quran, you say Quran, that, that teaches us to suffer peacefully. Our religion teaches us to be intelligent, be peaceful, be courteous, obey the law, respect everyone, but if someone puts his hand on you, send him to the cemetery. That's a good religion. In fact, that's that old-time religion. That's the one that Ma and Pa used to talk about, an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth, and a head for a head, and a life for a life. That's a good religion, and doesn't nobody resent that kind of religion being taught but a wolf who intends to make you his meal. He's framing Christian ministers as wolves for affirming nonviolence. And some of us are going to resonate with those words. And so we're going to see the words of Jesus and recoil. But I want to put these words against Malcolm's. I, I generally don't like to speak against my namesake. I love my, I love my namesake. But he misses the deeper revolution of the gospel. My favorite theologian, Antonio Gonzalez, says it beautifully. I want you to listen. I want you to listen to this. I would have it up there, but I want you to, I want you, just want you to listen to this. Okay. With such nonviolent tactics, Jesus is by no means lending support to unjust practices. What he's doing is more radical. He's proposing an, an escape from the relentless logic of retribution or revenge. Not resisting the evil person does not, mean re, does not mean approving of his actions. Rather, it means refusing to enter into his very logic. Quite clearly, the logic of revenge is the logic on which is founded every human form of domination and every empire. And the tactics proposed by Jesus strike at the very root of oppression, not only its concrete manifestations. What Jesus proposes is that people begin to establish, starting right now, new social, new social relations that are free from the logic of retribution. And this means refusing to respond to the powerful with their own violent means. To be nonviolent is not a sign of weakness. It's a sign of strength and of courage. And the fact of the matter is, is that that is a strength and a courage that I think very few of us have. But it strikes at the heart of oppression rather than merely dealing with its trappings. And here's the other thing about trying to be robustly nonviolent. Malcolm X was very, very popular because the logic of retribution makes a lot of sense to us. It's the logic that Peter operated out of when he attacked Malchus. If you come after me, I'm going to take you down with me. You took, you, you, you took my promotion. I'm going to make you suffer for it. You're in my way. I'll trample you underfoot. You're getting on my nerves. I'm going to move you out of my way. We all do this in a number of different ways. How do you? How do you live by the logic of retribution? For some of you, it may not be outright aggression. It might be passive aggression. You know who you are. You know, how, you know how you operate. But Jesus, Jesus never does. The Son of God could have seen us in our sin and in our rebellion and thought, I'm wiping them out. But instead, the triune God looks on us with love. In the garden, he, he could have called down thousands of angels. He could have snapped, and the cohort would have been dropped on the spot. He's the creator. He can do what he wants. But, in, but that would have meant succumbing to the logic of the empire. 
When they arrested him, when they slapped him, when they scourged him, when they crucified him, he could have said, you know what, I don't need to take this, and taken an earthly kingdom. But he didn't, because that would have meant succumbing to the logic of the empire. When he was on the cross, gasping his last breath, he could have decided not to die. He could have said, all right, we're done. I've I've suffered enough. Game over. Time for me to save everybody. But he didn't, because to do so would have meant succumbing to the logic of the empire. Instead, he died. He gave up his spirit. And while people throughout history have sought to kill for Jesus, that is one thing that he has never asked of anyone. The call to follow Christ is not a call to kill. It's a call to die. Because the good news of the gospel is that Christ, by his death, defeated the cosmic powers. He defeated the world, he defeated the devil, and he defeated your sin. And by showing the world that victory is won, not by killing, but by dying, Jesus struck a killing blow at the very logic of the world in which we live. And by getting up from the dead, he told us, look, this is what really works. See, see, the gospel is the good news that violence doesn't ultimately work. Imperial violence killed our Savior, and the fact that he got up reminds us that unjust violence does not have the final say. And a nonviolent ethic, a robust nonviolent ethic, only makes sense in light of the resurrection. The good news is that when we repent and place our faith in Christ, he gives us his spirit by whom we can actually live the new lives that he describes in the Sermon on the Mount. More Gonzalez for you. He says this, the Sermon on the Mount, like all Jesus is preaching, is aimed primarily at a community that is visible and public, one in which new social relations have already appeared. It's a community where there is forgiveness, a community without violence, a community where a new justice becomes manifest, a justice based on generosity and not reciprocity, on on equality and not retribution. In a word, it's a community in which God's project for for humankind becomes plainly visible. When you hear the good news of the gospel, that's what you're being invited into. That's what a community indwelt by the Holy Spirit looks like. And that makes no sense to the world. But it is precisely what the world needs. And if our community, and, 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 and this community can only exist if we truly build our lives around Jesus Christ and his salvation, because a nonviolent life and nonviolent ethic only makes sense because of the resurrection. If you're here and you do not know this Christ, he invites you to himself. He invites you to repent and to believe in this gospel that that Jesus died for you because he loves you and he wishes to make you whole, but he also wishes to get you to live, not, not not just in these like different discrete ways, but to live by a fundamentally different logic with fundamentally different values. We are in the middle of a cosmic war, brothers and sisters. The world, our flesh, and the devil want us to live by the logic of revenge, the logic of retribution. May we, by the power of Christ, live by the logic of the upside-down kingdom. Let's pray.